Well, hopefully you have your Bibles in their turned to the book of James, and I'm going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to look at these uh, verses this morning as we get started in a new series called Undivided Faith. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. So it's a letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Pray with me, Lord, we just ask that through these words that you would equip us, strengthen us, that you would change our perspective, that you would prepare us for uh, whatever season in life we are facing, the trials that we may be facing in the present or the ones that would come. And Lord, we just, we open our ears and our hearts to you that we could hear and understand your word, apply it and obey it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting this series in James, and it'll last throughout the spring. And I thought as a way of beginning that it might be helpful just to share three reasons I chose this book and why I think it's important for us to spend some time studying the book of James over the next couple months. I've got three fairly simple ones. The first one is this. It's pastoral. James... The writer that we are introduced to in verse 1 is likely James, the brother of Jesus, who eventually became the influential pastor of the church in Jerusalem, one of its primary leaders as the church flourished and grew. And so he, he comes at his instruction with a pastoral heart, with a real desire to help real people going through things walk out their faith in practical ways. And so he's not just an academic or a theologian or uh, anything like that. He, he's a pastor, and he cares about his people, and the words he has are about shepherding people into the way of really thriving in Christ. And so it's a pastoral letter. The second thing is, is that this letter is pertinent to our current cultural climate. James was speaking, actually, as we see in verse 1, to a group of spiritual refugees, You notice it says that he writes this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. 
or more specifically, the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Now, that's symbolic language. That's the kind of language that, Jeru- that um, Israel used in the Old Testament to describe itself when it had been exiled to Babylon in Assyria. That instead of being a group of people in their own land with their own rule and their own values, now they had been scattered and they were having to learn what does it look like to live out our faith in the midst of Babylon. And uh, as we're spread among the nations and so really what happens is James looks at the church and he says you are the fulfillment of this picture you are a group of people who are not living in a world where you are at home you are culturally dispersed into places that may or may not affirm your values, and you're going to feel more often than not like strangers in a foreign land, like refugees in immigrants or exiles in a place that your faith doesn't entirely make sense, and you're going to have to learn to live out your faith with an undivided heart. Listen, living out our faith in our current cultural climate means there will be many times where we do not feel at home. And so James is giving wisdom for what it's like to live as spiritual refugees, exiles. It's a major theme of the New Testament for us as a church to realize we're not going to always be the people in sort of the place of cultural influence and power, and we're going to have to learn how to live with undivided hearts, a pure faith where we're not constantly pressing ourselves into the mold that the world forces onto us. And so there's wisdom in this book. For the kind of situations you and I face as we live out our faith. It's pertinent. And then third, it's practical. The genre of James here, the genre of this book, the the sort of category you could put it in, is that it's a wisdom letter. He's a pastor who has some ideas about how he can help people as they've been scattered. And he wants to get right at it. And so, those are the three reasons I chose this book. It's pastoral, it's pertinent, it's practical. If there's a theme in the book of James that you would like to, uh, to really wrap your head around, it's really about integrating faith and life. That's what James is about. It's about integrating faith and and life, not allowing it to be divided off, our spiritual lives to be divided off from the things we actually do. It aims to make our life a spiritual whole. So we've titled the series Undivided Faith for that reason. Um, so without further ado, let's just jump into today's topic and see how he helps us with that idea. You see, here in a letter that is designed to teach us how to live faith filled lives in a world where we're like strangers without a home, James begins by teaching us the value of spiritual training through our trials. He, he, he goes right into teaching the value of spiritual training through our trials. That the trials and experiences that we're having in life, and that particularly this group of Christians was experiencing as they were scattered from their homes, so to speak, that those, that, that those trials were a part of their spiritual training to help them endure in the things that mattered most. So the main idea today that we're going to look at is that trials build 
the endurance needed to finish our race victoriously. That's what happens. That's what we see in verses 2 through 11. We see this idea that trials that we experience, small or large, of various kinds, some because of the consequences of our sin, some because of the actions of others, some because we live in a world that's broken and not complete and we haven't reached our eternal home yet. The whole variety of types of trials that we that we experience, all of those trials build in us the endurance needed for us to finish. Not just this season, but the whole of our life and calling before God to finish it with a sense of real victory. You know, it's an endurance race. It's not about this mile. It's about the finish line. And in some manner, what he's really wanting us to see is the challenges that we are learning to endure in this mile are intended to help us cross the finish line. That's real victory. Walking with the Lord to the end. So the main idea here, trials build the endurance needed to finish our race victoriously. You see, James wants us to get the most that we can out of our trials. And he's writing to give clear instruction. Clear instruction is a great way to think about this letter because really it's full of these commands and exhortations running through it. There are more commands and exhortations packed into a small space in the book of James than anywhere else in the New Testament. Over and over, it's strong words of instruction, command, and wisdom. And so so it creates sort of an outline. He's writing James as a wise, spiritual older leader giving necessary instruction through this entire letter that is clearly seen by how many imperatives there are imperatives are commands and exhortations and and so when you read through you can just follow them he jumps from imperative to imperative to imperative Um, usually you know we get instructed or commanded about things we don't find easy or natural so James has some things for us to do so that we discover what we need to know. You know, in a lot of ways, James, he's so practical. He says, you, don't, you may not know where to start with what you're facing, but do this. Start by doing this. You may not understand why, but start by doing this. And, and so he tells us what to do over and over because he knows in the midst of that doing, we'll discover and understand some of the questions we have in trials. Why? What am I supposed to learn? How do I get through this? He starts by saying, do this. He gives instructions. So if we pay attention to these imperative verbs, we can get a good sense of the message here in the book of James as we go. And in in these 12 verses, there are three primary imperatives. And I phrased them for simplicity, but I want to show them to you. The first one is count it all joy. The second one is ask God for wisdom. And the third is learn to boast in the right thing. So that's your outline. That's what we're going to talk about in dealing with trials. Learning to count it all joy. Learning to ask God for wisdom and learning to boast in the right things so that we are properly trained by our trials for endurance. So in order to make the most of our spiritual training and trials, the first thing we see here is that we must count it all joy. I need to get you guys involved a little bit this morning, a little bit of feedback. So can you just say out loud, count it all joy. 
Okay, that's the first instruction James has in verses 2 through 4 to help prepare our mindset for genuine gain in our trials. These verses give us a way to face our trials rather than just be thrown about by them. And that really makes a difference. How we face our trials, the mindset we carry, makes a difference in how we experience them. I think you're going to see this as important. The strong imperative here in the text is the word count there at the beginning of verse 2. Count it all joy. So these verses give us this way to face it. And, and there's this strong imperative count. And if we pay close attention, thinking about this word can really help us gain the right mindset for whatever we may be facing. James says to count it as joy. Now, one of the reasons James tells us to count our trials as joy is because we don't naturally enjoy them. That there's some considering. Like, in a sense, this version of counting is, you need to understand how that's to be counted. <laughs> how you're to consider this thing. There are a lot of different ways he could have instructed us about facing trials, but he's really specific here. He uses a word that helps us see that we need to actively take leadership over how we face the difficulties we experience in life. The word count here comes from leadership terminology. It's, it's what a ruler does in making a decision. He decides something about a situation. One of the things that leaders do is they actually, they, they make decisions about what we're facing. <laughs> they frame how to look at the problem. And, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, part of what you need to do when you're facing a trial is the first thing you need to do is you've got to figure out what that thing is and how you're going to look at it, how you're going to count it in your life. Without doing that, you're going to be at the mercy of your experiences rather than leading yourself to understand what God might be doing. And so here he begins to help us with this terminology. It can mean, this word count can mean take authority. Sort of get a sense of what it's like to rule over that thing. To, to deem something or account for something. This is the kind of counting. You know, when, when, in, uh, when you're working with a budget or you're accounting for expenditures, you're determining where it belongs, what, what fund it gets counted against. And so he's saying, why don't you identify that thing and figure out what category it belongs in? Is it something that's going to kill you or is it designed for something else? And so he's saying, take an account of your trial. You see, James is concerned with what we decide about our trials, how we lead ourselves to face it, how we account for it in the ledger of our lives. A major factor in how you experience any given set of circumstances in your life is the mindset that you face it with. And so he begins and says, count it all joy. It reminds me of the anecdote I've heard in several different places about the difference between how a bison deals with a storm and how domesticated cattle deal with a storm. I don't know if this is true. It sounds like we could just ask Jake. Uh, but, but I've always been caught by the story as a sort of parable. 
So, you know, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> I think it'll help illustrate a little bit. Uh, from what I understand, domestic, domesticated cattle tend to turn away from a storm and start moving uh, away from where it is coming from. And in some sense, it prolongs the experience of it and they're driven by it. But bison, instinctively, they turn themselves toward the storm and face it. They weather it head on. They see it for what it is and deal with it. And in some sense, even shorten the experience of it by not being driven by it. Moral of the parable, face your problems like a bison. Decide what it is and that you're going to look at it and understand it. It's a good idea, but James does even better for us. That gets us in the neighborhood but James does even better for us. He tells us to face it with a mindset that accounts it as valuable toward an overall goal of living a faithful life. The reason he says that we can count it all joy is because we see it as a contributing experience to the joyful end that we're pursuing. It's building endurance in the present and I need that endurance so that I'm there at the end. Because I want to be there at the end for the joyful moment when God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, and welcomes me into the joy of his kingdom. And I want to be there. And if I need to learn endurance here so that I can have joy there, now I can recount this is joy because that's what's coming and it's where I want to be. Is anybody tracking with me? So, so that's important. To face it with that kind of mindset and learn to count it in our ledger as joy. Now that doesn't mean that all experiences, all the experiences of a trial are pleasant. Some of them are downright painful. And if you don't know that, it just means you haven't experienced any trials yet. They can be incredibly painful and difficult. But we have to get the story right or we will not know how to count it. The wrong story leads to the wrong assessment of our present trials. I came back from a workout this week. Uh, maybe some of you guys got into working out for the week, you know. Some of us are one-week workout people. Uh, I came back from the workout, and Annie asked me with a sort of positive sense of expectation, how did your workout feel? Now, for reference, during the time between Thanksgiving and New Year's, I substituted all of my workout times with eating Christmas cookies. So I just made a one-to-one -one substitution. If I was supposed to be working out, I ate cookies instead. And, uh, you know, that carried on, you know, all the way to New Year's. And uh, so, you know, turning the, turn the calendar, I knew I needed to get back on the straight and narrow towards something that resembles being healthy. So she asked, how did your workout feel? workout number three of the new year and uh, and the answer was it felt awful I mean it was terrible I hated the whole experience that day for the most part I can I remember from the moment I you know I, I, from the moment I stepped on the treadmill and got on you know I did this workout where I thought maybe if I do like five things it won't feel as bad I don't know if you do this sometimes, because I have days where I just run six miles, and that is, that's my workout. But I thought, you know, maybe if I climb on the stair stepper, I ride bike for a few minutes, I row, you know, the newness of each change will just make it better. And actually, it just got worse and worse and worse until I finally finished the workout and just was so glad to be done. Hang with me here. 
If the story is, I go to the gym because it's a joy, I'm not going back again. I'm done. That did not produce joy. (laughs) It was total misery. I would quit right now. That story does not currently have a chance of being true. And quite honestly, is very short-sighted. But if the story is, I go to the gym so that I can maintain a sense of health and strength to be able to show up and build a strong marriage, a family, a church, an overall life for many years to come with a sense of health. Well, that's a different story. And this workout, I can count as a necessary part of that joy. And you can't skip the process. And so I count it different. And I'm just like, I'm glad I did it. It was a joy to know that one day it's not going to feel like that all the time. And I'm one workout closer to it not being that way. In a sense, this is exactly how James is teaching us to face our trials. Notice how he emphasizes endurance. Some Bibles use the term steadfastness. They're really close terms. He, He says that what trials do, the primary thing he's focused on, is in the present they create endurance so that we learn to be able to endure with steadfastness for the things that matter most. Because the endurance that is built through a trial may produce the kind of character that is needed to pursue something that brings great joy later. That's how life works. This workout is unpleasant in the moment. So you need to lead yourself out of that story that says to run away from it and into the story that says God is using this trial to train me to be the kind of person who actually endures in life and continues on in faithfulness all the way to the victory line. I can't skip it. God has assigned it to me. It's not intended to destroy me. It is, as Paul says, a light and momentary affliction that is working for me an exceeding weight of eternal glory. The steadfastness and endurance I'm learning in this season is necessary to enjoy what God wants to give me and prepare me for in a future season. Imagine for a second moving from, oh no, I can't handle any more of this. That may be where some of you are at right now. To something like, Lord, if you can help me learn to handle this, I'll hardly have to fear anything in the future. You know, this is the experience that trials produce in us. Many times God makes us face that very thing that we fear losing. And he just takes it off the table for a moment. He says, you can't imagine that your life could be okay without this thing, but I need you to know it is. And so God brings us through a trial so we don't live in constant fear of losing things that aren't the determining factor of our genuine joy. And some of us need to be shocked into discovering that. Almost all of us do, to be honest. We don't just reason ourselves there. God takes us through experiences that train us to really believe it. But you know, I want to be in a place where I'm not afraid of things. I'm not afraid that I can't endure a difficulty, that I'm going to be crushed by adversity. And so partly, allowing God to train us through those trials really is a way in which He gives us spiritual freedom for the future. If you see the value in that, you'll be able to begin to count it all joy. This is what He means. He doesn't mean consider something joy that's not joy. (laughs) Just ignore the difficulty. 
He means it can be reframed into the real story of what God is doing. And so he tells us to count it all joy. The second thing that we learn then about dealing with trials that James shows us is after we've gotten the right mindset is he tells us that we're to ask God for wisdom. So say it with me. Ask God for wisdom. Okay. So by taking some leadership over how you face your current trials of whatever variety you have, you can get inside the right story and you can begin to count it differently. It puts you in a place then to seek the Lord for understanding about what he may be doing and prepares you to ask God for wisdom. Now you, now you know this is a part of what God's doing. Or that he can take anything that you face and he can purpose it for your good. So now you can start asking him what good he's up to. God, in this trial that you are using, certainly as you've said, to teach me endurance and steadfastness, I want to know what you're up to in me. Like, in what ways do I need to become more steadfast? It's really important for you to see that this very well-known instruction about seeking wisdom from God comes in the context of dealing with our various trials we face. Although it may be genuinely true that God loves to grant us wisdom, Particularly here, it's that God loves to grant us wisdom to understand how our trials are helping us grow in steadfastness. That's the kind of wisdom that he is sure to teach us and show us if we will attune our hearts and ask him for it when we're in the midst of our trials. God dumps out wisdom freely to faithful people who want to trust him in trials. This is what this is James is saying here. He doesn't just give us wisdom to pursue our own agendas, but when he finally helps us realize what he's doing and get the mindset that this trial is for our good, what he does is he gives us all the wisdom we need to get out of it what he wants to teach us and show us. He begins to help us. It's amazing, you know, if you think about what it says here. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, again, in this particular context, let him ask God. Why? Well, because he gives generously to all without reproach. So it may be genuinely true that God grants wisdom in general for situations in our life. It says here that God is generous in giving us wisdom, especially in our trials. It also says that he doesn't discriminate in passing it out. When it comes to granting wisdom through tri trials, James is saying here that God is not stingy and he doesn't discriminate. You may feel immature or unworthy. <laughs> you may feel like you're not a valuable part of God's kingdom, but if you're facing a trial and you're one of God's people claimed by the blood of Jesus through faith in him, you belong to his family, then God is ready to dump out wisdom in your life for whatever trial you may be facing. He's not keeping score of who you are or where you're at or how you rank. God has wisdom for you in whatever is going on in your life right now that is a difficulty that he is using to train you. And it says that he's generous about it. It's not just a little bit. Now, in my experience and observation... Some people do not ask God for wisdom in their trials because they assume there's none there to be gained. They've accepted a view of trials that just says they happen and there's nothing I can really get out of it. I just have to deal with it. And I mean, most of the time when you 
go through something you don't understand, it's easier to write that conclusion across it, isn't it? Like, I don't know what this is about. You know what? I think it's too hard to figure out what it's about. So I'm just going to assume it's pointless, meaningless. Well, I'll tell you, meaningless suffering is really hard. But there is something amazing and transformative when we know that God is doing something and we can ask Him for wisdom and see it and become a person that is now more in tune with how God is working in us. And He says, this is what God does in our trials. Trials are not counted as a part of necessary training for endurance in in this negative situation where it's just empty, but they're seen as something entirely negative and to be avoided. And some of us look at our trials as just, I just need out of it. Sort of like Joseph being in prison, just needing out of prison, right? And never experiencing the purpose that God had for it to begin with. Once you have the mindset shift, though, then you seek to know that God has a gift of wisdom wrapped up in your trials. And you can begin to ask that he would help you see it. It leads to a different kind of prayers. Here's the kind of prayers that you pray when you begin to ask God for wisdom because you know he's at work in your trials. Lord, what fears do you want to help me overcome through this trial? Maybe there's some fears that are holding me back. Lord, are there some character flaws in my life that you're exposing right now through all of this? Sometimes we're not willing to look at that until the Lord has a a place of humility where I really feel out of control. And I see what happens when I'm not in control. My character is exposed. Lord, Are there some character flaws that you're exposing right now through all of this? The Lord only exposes those things to heal us, to help us grow. Lord, what new values will I need to embrace to survive this? Like, Lord, if I'm going to survive what I'm facing right now, what new values am I going to need? What's going to have to change in the things that I really hold to, aspire to, desire? Lord, what practices or patterns will I have to cultivate to thrive if this continues for a long time? You know, some of, some of us are facing trials that may not end quickly. You know, and I, I, think, I think we mostly like sermons about trials that say, hang on, it'll be over really, really soon, and your life can get back to normal. But my experience is life doesn't go back to normal. That there are a lot of trials that may be with us until eternity. And they're, they're designed to force us to ask new questions. What, what am I going to have to cultivate to be able to live with this reality? That's where transformation really begins to happen. I become a new person when I have to wrestle with that. Lord, is it possible to endure what I'm experiencing and maintain hope? Can I get both of those in the same room? I'm going to continue to experience this and become a hopeful person? Lord, are there some faithful people you can help me journey with through this storm? Lord, who do I need? What kind of people am I going to need to lean into 
You see, these are faith-filled, wisdom-seeking prayers for people in trials that are aligned with what God has already said is true. They're They're the ways that we ask God for wisdom and position ourselves with a posture of expectancy. Asking these sort of questions with expectancy toward God teaches us to not confuse our circumstances with questions about whether God loves us. You see, this is a whole different posture. When I'm asking these kind of questions, I'm not saying, hey God, is this a, is this a reminder that you don't really love me? <laughs> is this trial a reminder that I'm so far off that you don't care and you want to see me destroyed? You know, these, you know that, that mindset is what he's going to call here the double-minded man. The person who has a divided mind, who doesn't understand. No, no, no. The trials are real things that Christians face on their journey to glory that are a part of how God teaches us endurance so we can possess the real heavy joys that matter and carry them with us. And, and that's real. All of us. Every last person in this room is going to face that, and God can help you, by His wisdom, learn to thrive all the way to eternity. Through every trial, every moment, steadfast in the Lord. He builds steadfastness. But that stands apart from the constant questioning of God's love in our trials, that he describes here as being tossed about by the wind and the waves in a storm. You notice that language? The one who doubts here is the one who doubts that God is purposeful in our trials. Who wonders whether it's a sign of God's love or lack thereof in our lives. This is the doubting that he's talking about. And we often face this. And he describes it as being tossed about by the wind and waves in a storm. The storm comes and you're not anchored. The storm comes and we are blown wherever the wind will take us. My most vivid picture of being tossed about by the wind and waves came for me when we were uh, on a cruise several years ago. The waves became large enough that the pool on the deck looked like a tidal wave pool. Like there was literally a kid in a floaty that was thrown up out of the pool onto the deck and then they shut it down. You know, I thought, okay, this is getting a little too dangerous. And you know, it wasn't that. I mean, the waves weren't terrible, but it was enough to create some real problems. Then as the evening came, uh, there were a lot of people up on the deck where you could see the crew of our ship was working to rescue a raft full of Cuban refugees. They had built a raft and they were out on, well, you know, we've got an engine and a direction and a large ship and ballast. I mean, this thing is heavy that we're in. And and, uh, there's these folks, you can see there's probably like 15 or 20 of them out on a raft and they're just going up and down and up and down. They have no engine, no way to control themselves, and they're being cast about by the waves and the wind. So they're on this homemade raft with no direct direction on the choppy Caribbean. And, and we, were, we were feeling the waves, but they were being tossed around. And it really didn't look survivable. And thankfully, the crew of the ship we were on um, you know, was, was working to, to rescue them. But it, even then, with professionals, it looked like it was not certain that this was going to work out. 
Uh, it, it was pretty precarious. And so we're all up on the deck watching this go on. But the danger became even more obvious uh, as they were trying to bring them near to our ship and into a door on the side of the hull. And you could see that they were just going up and down. Like, I mean, the amount of distance they were covering up and down on those waves was shocking to watch when you compared it to the size of our boat. It, 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 was, it was astounding. And uh, it was nearly impossible for them to get in the door and stay secure in the process. Thank God all of them made it to safety uh, in this particular night, and everybody up on the deck started cheering for the crew, and it was like this big deal. But it was, it was more entertaining than the attain. Not settled their heart on the promise of God's love in the gospel. If you haven't settled your heart on that, they drive you to all sorts of conclusions you might not have thought possible. You may think, you know what, I think I'm good with the Lord, until a trial shows up and it drives you far away from Him. You start to see how rooted your faith really is. They drive you to all sorts of confusion, send you out of control spiritually. So, so James warns us here. He says that there's this first type of asking that we just talked about in those sort of prayers of faith, what God is doing. But then there's a second type of asking that is not done in faith that he calls doubting here or double-mindedness. It's the sort of asking of accusation. God, why are you making this happen to me? Why won't you let me out of this? Right? Not from a place of real desire for wisdom of asking for wisdom, but more like asking for escape or just flat anger. Now, I want to I step aside and say everybody needs to be honest with where they're at. You know, we hear sermons every now and then like, bring, bring your frustrations to God. And I will say, totally, do that. Get before God. He's big enough for you to say, I'm really ticked off that i got to face this trial. But sometimes we act like that's all there is to do. Like, that's where we start, because sometimes we deny that, and we're really all that anger is boiling under there, so we're really not asking for wisdom. So we got to get honest. God can handle your honesty. I'm not there, all of that. He can do that. But that's just like baby step number one on the path towards enduring trials in the way that God desires us to. The, the real thing is to be able to get to a place where we can ask God for wisdom, and we're not wondering all the time about His love because we're facing some sort of difficulty. You see, for James, God's love has been settled at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what you need. The biggest storm of our lives is the storm of God's righteous justice over our sin, not the trial that we are currently facing. If you could see the biggest storm that you need to worry about, it would be settling your life before God and trusting the promise of the good news of Jesus that says that Jesus has paid for your sin in such a way that you'll never face the storm he did on the cross. That he went under the storm of God's wrath that our sin rightly deserves. And he died beneath it. And the Bible says that in doing that, he stood in our place in the most powerful storm that could ever have destroyed us. The one that we deserve, God's justice over our lives. And that he rose from the dead on the third day with victory over our storm. That he 
not only won that victory, but he now promises to us that he will shepherd us on to really finding rest and security and joy in his coming kingdom. Jesus has dealt with all of that, and now he comes to us in our much smaller trials of concern and promises that he will be with us. And James knows, until we're settled that that's what God is doing, that we will be driven about with doubt. Jesus is our ark of safety in the storm. The large ship that can bring us home. The double-minded person continues to reject that God loves them and faces every trial still waiting to get that question answered. From that vantage point, every new wave tosses you into the same question and confusion. That is the sort of doubt that keeps us from being able to receive anything in regards to wisdom in our trials because it cuts us off from the shining light of God's love. You see, our instability in trials comes from not believing the truth about the riches that God has already granted us in the cross and, and the promise of Jesus. Listen, if you're totally destroyed by your trials, look to the cross and experience Jesus as an ark of, ark of safety so that he can then secure you in the storms that you're facing. So that ultimately the third thing is we can learn to boast in the right thing. Learn to make our boast in the right thing. This is what it's all about for James and for us. In verses 9 and 11, we come to see that this is really all about the gospel and learning what our true riches are in Christ. The security we need has been granted to us and cannot be lost through trials. This is why he says what he says in verses 9 through 11. We have the security we need to endure trials through the promise of Jesus in the gospel. Our true riches are not finding security in this world. But knowing that after a time of dispersion among the nations of the world is promised a time where we'll be gathered to Jesus and given life in a kingdom that he has secured. Where death has been defeated. Sin has been separated from us and we have an unending crown of life and victory. That has been given to us promised and paid for by the blood of Christ. James says that, and that alone, is our true riches, and he does so by instructing two different groups of people. If that is true, and that's where our real security and riches are, they're in Christ, that means when the rich lose something in their trials, they're learning not to find their security in the wrong place. And so he says in, verses, in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let's set that aside. Verse 10 and the rich in his humiliation. What he means is the rich in being brought low from his lofty view of his own pursuits. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. That's true for the rich and for the poor. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. And so how long do the pursuits of a rich man last? He says they last like a very short season. But often we are exalted in our sense of security, of what we've purchased for ourselves, what we can give to ourselves. And he says, let this moment of trial be like a, a gift to you to finally be able to see what's never going to last. 
so that you can be rooted in what really will. So he says that we're to learn to boast in this humiliation, this being brought low, to make a big deal in our trials about the opportunity to learn that and to rest in Christ. At the same time, the person who feels like they're in a place of never being able to get ahead, here's the poor man, where the trial they're facing has caused them to think there will never be any security, he says, take comfort. In Christ, through the promise of the gospel, you've already been exalted. You've already been given the riches. The security you look for in getting out of your situation that's causing your trial is nothing in comparison to the exalted blessing that has already been promised to you. Rejoice in your exaltation. The way you deal with your circumstances is to make a bigger deal of what has already been promised to you in Christ. That's how we deal with our circumstances. Charles Spurgeon once told this illustration that Ryan Pugh often shares. Uh, He said that constantly fretting over the losses we experience in our trials is like a man who's taken a carriage ride into a city to collect a life-changing, valuable inheritance. And the carriage breaks down on the way. Because of the breakdown of the carriage, they spend their time in constant sorrow of what has been lost. And forget about the inheritance that is being claimed that makes the situation so temporary. You see, making a big deal out of the broken carriage may make us miss the big deal of the gospel of Jesus that's given us our true wealth and exaltation that can never fade and will never be kept from us. So as we face our trials, let us learn to count it all joy, to ask for wisdom, and to boast in the right thing. I ask you to bow your heads and take some time before the Lord just to examine ourselves and to pray. Lord, you've been good to us better than we could ever deserve. Lord, we ask that you would give us this wisdom and perspective in our trials. Thank you that the biggest storm we could ever face has already been dealt with our safety has been provided we can seek refuge in Christ and know that we're secure so Lord we come to you with grateful hearts trusting that you desire to train us to walk practically in those joys and to experience security and steadfastness as you show us the things that really matter so we just, we entrust that to you. We ask that you would give us spiritual eyes to be able to see that, faith to trust you. That we find Jesus to be more valuable than ever in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.